Hi, friends. Welcome to episode 191 of Motherhood in Hollywood. My guest today is the incredible scientist, Dr. Maria Mayer. She is starring in a new show on the Travel Channel called Expedition Everest, and she has an incredible story. I cannot wait to share that with you guys. But first, let's talk about Spring Free Trampoline. I just recently gave away a Spring Free Trampoline at the Motherhood in Hollywood swag party, and it was such a thrill to get to do that. If you don't know about Spring Free Trampoline, they are the world's safest trampoline because the springs are underneath the trampoline. That means it's not exposed in the top of the trampoline like most trampolines you buy online. The Spring Free Trampoline has been safety tested. It has a 10-year warranty and it's customizable. You can get it in a variety of different colors so you don't have to just get a boring black trampoline. Ours is pink and white. Ah, so dreamy. If you want more information about Spring Free Trampoline, head on over to their website, springfreetrampoline.com and find out how you can get one. Um, Hopefully, if you order fast, you might be able to get one in time for Christmas, but for sure for the new year. All right, let's get started with the show. Come on, mama. Grab your popcorn and goobers. It's time for Motherhood in Hollywood with your host, Heather Brooker. This is a crude prude's perspective on being a full-time mom in showbiz. She's not a perfect mom, but she can play one on TV. Hold on to your butts. Here's Heather. Hi, friends. It's almost Christmas. Are you excited? Are you getting ready? I am sort of ready. I haven't quite sent out my Christmas cards yet, but I have them. Um, That's at least uh, a little bit more ahead of the game than I usually am. And uh, I'll be sending those out soon in the next week. hopefully a few days. I got to get it together. I went to the Star Wars premiere last night, which was so epic, so cool. Um, You know, it's always really fun to go to these big movie premieres, but the bigger the premiere, the less actual stars of the movie you get to talk to. Now, I got a couple of people. I got John Boyega, Richard E. Grant, um, Greg Grunberg, which is great, but we didn't get Daisy Ridley. um, We didn't get Mark Hamill. You know, some of the bigger stars, um, not bigger stars. That makes it sound like John Boyega and those other stars are not big, but you know what I mean? Um, but it's still a thrill. It's still so much fun to go. I love my job so much and, um, I'm so excited that I get to do that. Hopefully you guys are following me on social media, on Instagram at motherhood in Hollywood and on, um, Facebook at motherhood in Hollywood and Twitter at Heather Brooker as well to follow along. And, um, yeah, see who I get to go to, what premieres are next. Um, I want to talk quickly about the most exciting thing, though, that's happened in the last week. I got to host the third annual Motherhood in Hollywood Swag Party. This year's theme, it was a holiday swag party. This year's theme for the holiday swag party was ugly sweaters. And I loved seeing everybody come to the swag party dressed in the most hideous sweaters. <laughs> Now, if you don't know what the Ugly Sweater Swag Party is, I'm going to put some information up on Motherhood in Hollywood so you can kind of get a better idea. But essentially, the idea behind it all is that, you know, I've been super blessed and very lucky through Motherhood in Hollywood that I get gifted a lot of things. A lot of companies and studios and brands send me things in the mail. And it's wonderful. And I love it. And I love sharing about it, you know, and and all of that. But it's not possible for me and my little family to keep all of the things that we get throughout the year. So, um, a couple of years ago, I had the idea to just invite people over, have a cheese plate, um, some wine and gift them all with the things that I get. 
And it sort of turned into this really big event now every year. And the motherhood and Hollywood party this year was no exception. The holiday party was off the chain. I'm going to tell you, um, spring free trampoline gave away a trampoline, as I mentioned. And we also had, um, Boda box wines. If you love wine, if you love wine in a box, <laughs> then you have to check out Boda box. What's great about this wine is first of all, it's delicious. I mean, they've been making it for such a long time and you can tell the love and the care and the attention that goes into this wine. It's not a typical box wine. It's not the Francia, uh, that your mom gets and puts in the refrigerator. Um, or was that just my mom? <laughs> It's not like that. It's a quality wine and it's delicious. And the Chardonnay and the Red Volution were the two favorites um, that we served at the party. But I had Chardonnay, the Pinot Noir, Red Volution, and um, uh, oh, Dry Rosé. That was the other one. And we also gave everybody the little Boda Box minis. So if you want something that's just maybe a little bit of wine, the Boda Box minis are uh, a great option as well. And all of the containers that Boda uses are 100% recyclable. So yay for the environment. And speaking of the environment, we have to talk about clean canteen. Everybody at the motherhood and Hollywood party got to go home with these beautiful clean canteens. They are stainless steel BPA free containers. And, um, they come in a variety of colors, shapes, and sizes. They are uh, a great alternative to single-use plastics. And also, they're just really hip and cool. Um, if you want to like um, help the environment and like look cool doing it, then Clean Canteen is the way to go. And I've also put more information up about Clean Canteen on my website. So definitely check them out. They're a family-owned company. They are wonderful. Another awesome thing that everyone got to go home with um, or check out at the Motherhood in Hollywood holiday swag party is Fetch Rewards. If you haven't heard about Fetch Rewards, that's F-E-T-C-H. Um, they're on Instagram and also in the app store. Go right now or maybe when you're done listening to this podcast um, and check out Fetch Rewards. You download this app and scan your grocery receipts and fetch scans the items that you've purchased and total them up. They work with hundreds of brands. They total up rewards points and keep a tally of them in the app. And then once you get a certain number of rewards points, you can use them towards um, gift certificates or uh, discounts at stores um, or even donate to charity if that's your jam. As an example, uh, 5,000 rewards points can get you a $5 gift certificate to the iTunes store, a $5 um, gift certificate to GameStop. Those are just a couple of examples. And you would be amazed at how quickly the points total up from just one or two grocery receipts. So one of the things I want to give you guys to encourage you to check it out and download the app and see how easy it is to use and how much you can start saving, how many rewards you can start getting is I want to gift you with 5,000 rewards points from Fetch Rewards. All you have to do is download the app, type in the code MIH holiday 5,000. And then you, when you scan your first receipt, you will instantly have 5,000 reward rewards points in addition to whatever you've just scanned on your grocery receipt. Um, I really want you guys to check this out and then message me and tell me how you liked it and how quickly you started saving. Like I said, I've already gotten like almost 10,000 points. I've only been using it for um, like a week or two and, uh, I've already gotten a few gift cards guys. That is the way to save. Um, <laughs> and then also, 
I want to thank La Pen Cotidienne for catering this party. Oh my gosh, they had the most scrumptious cookies. They had the most wonderful little sandwiches and dips um, that they provided for everybody. It was so, so, so delicious. And speaking of delicious, we have to talk about own natural skin food. Okay, so you definitely do not want to eat this, but you want to put it on your face. It's like nutrients and food for your skin. It is a new company. It is called O Natural Skin Food. The products are 100% natural and completely devoid of preservatives, parabens, nanoparticles, and toxic fillers. This is designed to be repair and care and also strengthening your skin's barrier. And I know with the winter months and the dry season coming on, um, we could all use a little bit of nutrients, extra nutrients and extra care and love in our skin, right? So you want to check out, they have a 12 week skin detox um, that can break your dependency on. And if you're using a lot of products with beauty chemicals and um, and that sort of thing, you want to check out uh, Oh Natural Skin Food. And I also put more information up about them on uh, motherhoodinhollywood.com. And sort of in keeping with the theme of how Helping our planet. I also want to mention Skin Food is a sustainable brand. All of their products come in refillable containers and recyclable plant-based eco-refill pouches. No single-use plastics there. So hooray for Skin Food. Um, and also we have to talk about Geese and Ganders. Geese and Ganders um, donated the most adorable, ugly sweater plates and uh, party supplies for us. That was so, so, so adorable and just the perfect touch for our party. So as you can tell, if you can tell by how excited I am, we had such a wonderful time at the Motherhood in Hollywood uh, holiday swag party. And um, I, again, we'll put up all the information on motherhoodinhollywood.com where you can find out about some of the companies I've talked about, um, some of the fun times that we had, and um, just sort of follow along in the adventures since I know you guys didn't get to come to the party. I know you don't have to have FOMO. You don't have to have FOMO. You can read along and listen along um, as if you were right there with us. Okay, you guys. So I am going to wrap it up my uh, recap of the MIH holiday swag party because I want to get to this interview um, with Dr. Mayer. She is um, a scientist who discovered a new species. You guys, that's incredible. She's also on the new travel channel show Expedition Bigfoot and has an incredibly inspiring story. If you've got a child who is interested in science or exploration or anything like that, you are definitely going to love this interview. So here is my interview with Dr. Maria Mayor. All right, everyone, we have such a treat today because we have a world-renowned scientist on the show, and also I'm going to call you an expert in um, uh, Bigfoot. <laughs> um, well, I wouldn't do that. No, <laughs> I'm uh, definitely not a Bigfoot expert. I was brought in as a scientist because of my background in primatology. Well, let's talk about that because you um, are, are, like you said, you are a scientist in primatology. What? Where did that come from? Where does a passion for primatology come from? It stems from my love of animals, really, as a kid. I had basically a zoo at home with dogs and cats and chickens and fish and you name it. Oh, I love that. And I was taking a, a class in college. I was actually a pre-law student, but I had to take a science requirement, and I chose to take an anthropology class, which is the study of man. And so we get into primates, of course, humans being primates. But there were there was a list of 
primates that had never been studied that were on the verge of extinction. There weren't even photographs of them. And that really captivated my attention. And then I saw gorillas in the mist and I was hooked. I knew then and there that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Isn't that interesting how films and television um, can sort of capture the imagination of a child and spurn them on to a lifelong career and passion? I love that. Well, it's funny that you would say that because when I when the first episode air of Expedition Bigfoot, I got a few comments on Facebook from other scientists who were appalled that I would take on such a role. And that was precisely my point back, is that when media and science collides, amazing things can happen. I mean, I think it's wonderful for, for women and for young girls to see a role model you know, who's a female adventurous explorer. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a gateway into the sciences. There's a lot of people that have then reached out uh, who are scientists who have said, you know, my passion for science actually started with the Loch Ness Monster or Jane Goodall's passion, for example, started when she read Tarzan and Jane. And so all of these different ways of conveying science in an, you know, in an entertaining way and reaching out to people who may not ordinarily be interested in it, I think is fabulous. I completely agree. I mean, how else will we get this information? Like, how else would we know it? I mean, I guess, you know, not every not every six, seven year old is reading encyclopedias on science and that sort of thing, you know, so <laughs> that's it's, right. It's much easier for them to digest um, this type of um, information and stories um, when they're watching television. Now, um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you had mentioned your background a little bit, but I have to talk about that. You fact that you were an NFL cheerleader. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I was, I was also a cheerleader for many years, not in the NFL, but I loved cheerleading. And, um, I think there's a misconception that cheerleaders are not smart in some way. And that is so unfair. Um, and I would love to talk about your experience as a cheerleader and then going into science? Well, there's definitely a stereotype. Sure. And I had to really prove myself in ways that probably many people haven't had to because of the fact that I had been an NFL cheerleader. And it's funny because that gave birth to my book, Pink Boots and a Machete, because for a while I was downplaying my femininity because I wanted to prove myself. And I just decided that I was going to be who I was. And so I started sporting pink boots in the field. And anyone that knows me knows that my boots are incredibly dirty. They're not just, they don't stay pink <laughs> for very long, right? So I'm, in, I'm all about muddy boots, exploration, and, and, and scientific research. But there is this stigma surrounding, you know, cheerleaders that I'm hoping to break when I give lectures around the country for National Geographic, for example, there's been uh, numerous occasions where young women will come up to me and say, you know, I was, I'm a cheerleader and I didn't know I could do this. And it's because they're pigeonholed. Mm -hmm. You know, people tend to put us in a box and think, okay, that's what they do. And that's all they can do. And that's far from the truth. Now you had mentioned, um, you, you go around and you speak uh, on behalf of National Geographic and you're also um, a, a field correspondent for them as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, how did you sort of decide to, um, I guess, start working with them in that way? 
So National Geographic approached me when I was in Madagascar doing research on critically endangered lemurs, and they wanted to do a documentary, uh, a documentary on the work that I was doing. And it, it was just supposed to be a one-off. And then they offered me a, a staff position as their first female wildlife correspondent, which I very excitedly took because it gave me the opportunity to cover stories about animals all over the world and pertinent habitat issues. And it gave me a real platform to talk about these things. So I became a National Geographic Explorer and I have been for almost two decades. And it's been an, an amazing adventure. That is so cool. I'm just envisioning all of the little girls who are like, I want to do that. That sounds so neat. <laughs> it's great. And I have five girls of my own. So a few of them have already expressed, expressed interest in following in my footsteps. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to talk to you about that. You have five girls. Um, and a boy. And a boy. <laughs> so wait, five girls and a boy, or is it four girls and one boy? Five girls. No, and... it's five girls and a boy. I have oh, six. Oh my goodness. God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. How, I would love to know, like, what does your typical day look like um, juggling all the kids? How, what are their ages? I don't necessarily have typical days. <laughs> sure. I can't so, imagine. <laughs> their ages, my oldest just turned 14 and then the next one turned 12 recently and then eight and eight because there are twin girls as well um a six-year-old boy and a four-year-old little girl wow so and I have the the full spectrum covered but a typical day for me <laughs> it really depends on the day because there are days I'm a course like anyone else getting homework with them shuttling them to all of their activities whether it's dance or soccer or violin or whatever it is that they're doing going to after school activities um, and then I also have a position as the director of exploration and science communications at Florida International University so I'm off to work and then at night it's making dinner getting everyone showered and ready for bed <laughs> and doing it all again the next day and that's one kind of day there's another kind of day where I'm packing a large expedition duffel bag to take out into the field where I'm going to be disappearing into for a month on, a, on an expedition somewhere, usually Madagascar or somewhere in Congo or Rwanda. And then there's, of course, the filming side where I'm taking off to share these stories with audiences. So I have to go out and film. Um, and do you find it difficult then to have to leave them for, to go on your um, your explorations? Sure. I think that any parent can relate to that feeling, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, getting on a plane and going somewhere or even just, you know, going into the office from nine to five. Um, and I definitely feel very lucky in that I'm incredibly involved uh, and, a, and a totally hands-on parent. Um, when I'm here, I'm very, very physically present for them but it's heart-wrenching of course as I'm packing my bag knowing full well that I'm not going to get to see their little faces or read them mm -hmm. bedtime stories you know for for weeks on end so it's it's a challenge and it's tough and there was a time when I first had my my first daughter where I thought you know what am I going to do now and it was my own mother that said to me, it's not what you do, it's who you are, and you owe it to your kids to be who you are and be their role model. And so 
she was absolutely right. I mean, my kids are incredibly proud of what I do. I go into their schools and I give talks um, to their classes and I've been able to take them on some pretty amazing adventures to, to Madagascar and different parts of the world. And so they kind of just know that that's what mom does. And then we all sit around in the living room and if I, I have filmed an expedition, then we watch it together and they get to ask me all sorts of questions and then of course say, can I go with you next time? <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. I was going to ask if they ever get to go with you and, and how you incorporate science in your um, daily lives. Cause you know, I'm an actor and uh, a host. And so I'm always on camera and I'm always filming myself and my daughter is always a part of that. So it's, that sort of just naturally happens in our family, but I, I'm curious to know how you incorporate science or if it just sort of happens organically. So I think that, as you know, science happens organically every day in our lives. I mean, everything that we do revolves around science. And so as far as incorporating them, um, my oldest, for example, she's a very talented, highly trained dancer and has no interest in going out into the woods anymore <laughs> with mom and, and trekking the rainforest of Madagascar. But my 12-year-old uh, spent several weeks with me in Madagascar, and she was a complete natural and wanted to move there and wants to go back. So it's, it's one of those th things that they're, it's all, they're all very different, and I don't push this life on them. If they want to come, I try to make it happen. There are some expeditions that are more rigorous or dangerous than others or places that are more dangerous than others that I go to. And I also weigh that into the balance. So it really depends on what I'm doing out there, if I'm able to take them and their own interests. But so far, um, they, they've all expressed an interest, except maybe the oldest who's, uh, who's done with that and prefers the comforts of the city. <laughs> I, I complete as a city girl myself, I like the idea of exploring in the woods, but ultimately I need to know that there's a hotel nearby that I can go and shower and sleep in and, and have some <laughs> and of my creature funny comforts. Because <laughs> I'm also a city girl. I grew up in Miami and I had never been out of the country. I'd never been camping. My mom thought joining the Girl Scouts was too dangerous when I was a kid, <laughs> but it's something that is so in me. Um, when I read explorer journals, for example, I feel like I'm, I'm reading my own, you know, pages out of my own journal. And I feel equally comfortable in the middle of nowhere where there's no running water or electricity. It's just like a small village um, with no communication with the outside world as I do coming back home and taking a hot shower and sleeping in a comfy bed. I mean, I, I'm equally comfortable in both scenarios. I love that because I think that there is girls can be both. We can be both. We can be like you said, in your, in your pink boots with your machete. We can enjoy being feminine and, and, um, uh, you know, dressing up and all of that stuff, but also enjoy getting dirty and exploring and, um, discovering things. So I absolutely love and, that. And I was always that kid. I would wear the frilly girly dresses and then I would wear, you know, the tomboy hat and out into the street and play stickball and climb trees and I liked you know getting muddy and and you know I, I that was something that I grew up as a child very much as I am as an adult I I love both aspects of it you know if we get a chance to 
to go out. I dress up when I go give my lectures, I'll often wear pink heels instead of the pink boots. (laughs) Um, but I, I love both scenarios so much. Now let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned it earlier about, um, your passion for primates and you, I understand you co-discovered the world's smallest primate. Um, tell me what that's like, because I can't imagine I mean, basically adding to the science, the annals of science history, you know what I mean? Like that just is so phenomenal to me. What was that experience like? Well, I think like for any scientist, it was a dream come true. And it was something that I could have never really anticipated. And I think like most discoveries, it was by accident. I was out there exploring and I was studying known lemurs uh, when we came upon a brand new species to science. And, you know, to describe that feeling is pretty difficult because it's unlike any other. It's a state of, you know, surprise and joy and wonder. And once we were able to confirm that, in fact, it was a brand new species, um, it was sort of life changing. And I felt like I had really followed my path and my purpose. And it had led me to that. As a result of that, I was able to meet with the prime minister and president in Madagascar, who were so excited by this discovery that they declared a national park. So that meant, of course, that the thousands of other species that were at risk for going extinct were now also protected. So it was a a really magnificent feeling. And because of the work that you do, do you find that you have um, also a passion for um, climate change and climate um, information and, and that sort of thing? Of course, I think that every one of us should be concerned about the state of our planet because this is something that it's not just affecting areas in faraway remote places in in Africa or the Amazon. It's affecting uh, every one of us, even where I live locally, we're at the front lines of climate change with sea level rise and and, um, storm changes and and all of these different factors. And I want to talk quickly about the show a little bit more about Expedition Bigfoot. I know I called you an expert earlier, <laughs> but I would love I was to about know. the only non Bigfoot expert. there. <laughs> um, but I would love to know a little bit more about the show itself and how you're involved with it. Sure. So, uh, the show basically wanted to take an old, uh, an age old legend of Bigfoot to pair it up with modern day technology. And so this was a very different approach to trying to, you know, finally put the rest about whether or not Bigfoot exists. And so they com- uh, Travel Channel compiled a team. Uh, one is uh, Bryce Johnson, who's our operations specialist. Uh, we've got uh, Ronnie LeBlanc, who is an expert in all things Bigfoot and, and paranormal. And then you've got Russell Acord, who's ex-military survivalist, who has also been uh, a Bigfoot researcher uh, since the 70s. So they were very knowledgeable about, you know, Native American lore and all of the different stories surrounding Bigfoot, um, as well as what to look for out there. My role was as a scientist because we wanted to keep the expedition grounded. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm only interested in hard evidence. Uh, So if somebody pointed to, say, a footprint that they immediately may jump to the conclusion that it's a Bigfoot, I would analyze it and say, well, actually, 
this is a bear's footprint or, Mm -hmm. you know, different things like that. So I was there to really keep it scientific um, and to collect evidence in an impartial way. I had no sort of expectations about what we would find. I treated this like I would any other expedition. I used a lot of the same methodology that I use in the field when I go and search for gorillas and, and other primates. And so it was a good balance because we each brought a very unique area of uh, experience and expertise that together, I feel like we made a, a really good team in trying to uncover this mystery. And where do they do most of the searching for Bigfoot? So what we did, which was also a very unique approach, is that we selected one area based on an algorithm. Data scientists that were identified by Travel Channel uh, looked at data points, including, uh, you know, recent sightings. And the area that popped out as where we were most likely to encounter a Bigfoot and the time at which we would do so was Central Oregon. And so we embedded ourselves in Central Oregon for uh, a little over three weeks in order to really assess the area, get to know the area, and really be able to look for clues rather than how traditionally uh, most people are are going into areas for a much shorter period of time and may miss things that, that you would you wouldn't get the chance to see because you're there for such a limited amount of time. And what are some of the signs? I know you mentioned a footprint, but honestly, I I feel like we have been chasing. There's been stories about people chasing Bigfoot for so, so long. Um, What, what should we be looking for? And honestly, does Bigfoot really exist? Like in your professional, like scientific opinion, like I just, if it always seems to me like it's just lore, like, you know, it's not real. So no, I completely understand where you're coming from. And I'm, you know, truthfully as a scientist, I come in as a skeptic, right? I mean, I really need hard evidence. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that you look for out there, um, of course, are our hair. Um, If we could get DNA samples, that would be one way of proving its existence. Um, we look for traces of its existence, like a lot of uh, animals and or, or different primates will build nests. Uh, you're looking for, there's things in these Native American stories and witness accounts about big, uh, Bigfoot's uh, breaking branches in certain way and setting them up in certain way, almost as markers. And so you look for all of these things, but for me, Unless I see Bigfoot breaking that branch, unless I see Bigfoot building that nest, it's it. All I can do is eliminate all the other possibilities. So, for example, there was um, a nest that we found, which was a very exciting find, but I couldn't tell you that Bigfoot made it because I didn't see Bigfoot make it. But what I can tell you is that a bear did not make it. A human most likely did not make it. Hmm. A deer did not make it. No, None of the known animals in that area would have made it. And the same thing with uh, things that we were able to capture on video. I could eliminate, and I actually had the help of other world-renowned primatologists and, and uh, an anthropologist who specializes in primate locomotion. Um, they assessed this video as well. And we all came to the conclusion that while we could not 100% say with certainty that this was a Bigfoot. 
we could say that this was a very large bipedal animal with a very almost human-like or ape-like stride, and it did not match anything else that we know of out there. I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you what it isn't. And so when people ask me, do I believe in Bigfoot? It's a tricky question because Bigfoot is not some sort of religion. It doesn't matter what mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can tell you that I, to be convinced, I would need some very definitive concrete evidence. And I feel that we found some very compelling pieces of evidence while we were out there. In fact, I feel like I walked away from this expedition with a very different perspective on Bigfoot. One of the, and I'll, I'll add one more thing because one of the things that really intrigues me about this whole Bigfoot, uh, you know, legend mystery is the number of people that come forward, you know, 10,000 modern day accounts of eyewitnesses, all with very consistent stories. Uh, we had the, uh, honor of, of meeting some of these people who, had a lot to lose by sharing those stories, certainly had a lot more to lose than gain. You know, their their credibility, some of them had never shared their story before because they were afraid of how it might affect their, their jobs or their personal lives. And so one of the things that I'm hoping that comes out of this show is that that stigma is removed so that more people come forward. And I already see it happening. I'm getting dozens of emails from people saying, I've never shared this with everyone, but here's my experience. And so I think that um, by people coming forward, you know, we have a much better shot if, in fact, there's something out there. I think it is fascinating. And I think the more we keep digging, the more we keep searching. I honestly think that somebody's going to come up with something one way or another that, yes, it exists or no, we can definitively say, you know, it doesn't. So and I, that, that's what science is all about. It's about that curiosity, the the wanting to dig for for answers and for the exploration side of it. That's what drew me to science in the first place. I've always loved the exploratory side. Well, I think you and what you do is absolutely fascinating and I'm know that you have been sort of traveling all over the world and, and like Madagascar for, you know, um, but I am so grateful for you taking the time to share your story with me. You're um, just in, infinitely fascinating to me. So thank you so much. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on your show. All right, everyone, I'm going to put up more information about Expedition Bigfoot, which is airing right now on the Travel Channel, as well as Dr. Mayer and where you can follow her um, and all of her expeditions. That's going to do it for me. You guys have a wonderful week. And remember, I'm not a perfect mom, but I can play one on TV. Bye. Mama funny. Balls.